I cannot, in all I have read thus far for the podcast, come up with a book more pertinent to a kind of visceral womanhood, and succinctly encapsulates the violence brought against women more than Evie Wilde's The Bass Rock. Especially on this International Women's Day episode. There is something in the air this year. We've all discussed about male violence against women. Discussions that feminist circles have been having for the last 100 years. This book holds up in its gory silence, in all the quick, brutal aspects, and it is absolutely crucial to have read in the year we've gone through. One of the particular things I enjoy about this book is the stink, the decay. Things rot in the book, women, bodies, legacies. I, in my own poetry, have found myself drawn to the idea of rot as a metaphor, in the body and in the soul. The body is the living thing that is on the road to dying, and how we hold that within ourselves in our day-to-day lives. I think it is an inherent imagining we carry within ourselves as women, like something we know from a very young age. We are constantly aware of the birth and the life and the death around the corner. People with uteruses have a different hormonal cycle that lasts the whole month rather than 24 hours like men, and we know that always is coming from within ourselves, that the lining shreds and we bleed and we have to hide it away. Sometimes, particularly in medicine, it feels like a great darkness carried within. Something could be horrifically wrong or growing, but you do not know about it because pain is dismissed or generally untrusted. But it is there, always, and that resonates across all three interwoven stories of the different centuries of women. I also believe I enjoy those aspects of this book because it's the same themes that run at the beating heart of folk, particularly folk songs and folk tales. It's why I find myself entranced by the lyricism of Florence Welsh and Hosier and Laura Marling. There is the devil and decay and rotting at the centre of folk, and in this novel, set along the Scottish coast, in view of the domineering and out-of-reach bass rock that acts as a centre the characters revolve around throughout the years, there is nothing more folk than ghosts and witches and cursed women. So, to begin, I read this book in the shadow of the murder of Sarah Everard at the hands of the police officer Wayne Cousins, who kidnapped, raped and murdered her before burying her in a building bag at the edge of a forest in Kent. I write this script now a year on since her body was discovered. After that, we were plagued by the news of Sabina Ness's murder, as she was walking home ten minutes from where she lived in the same week I purchased this book in September of last year. It resonates with the current climate and spotlight being shone on male violence and the murder of young women that, in the Bass Rock, alongside the violence wrought by men in all its colours and shades and intricacies against the three main women's storylines, there are final moments captured in a short story format about the ways that men have killed women, where men have banded together in order to murder the women in their lives, three of them drowning a girl after raping her as she picks seaweed in the dark, the girl walking home through the woods after visiting a friend and passing the master's son who clubs her over the head with a stick, The short stories capture how they murdered those women and girls once they had used, raped, beaten and finally killed and disposed of them. They're dismembered in suitcases, drowned in the shallows, beaten by golf clubs in short stories of horror. But it's all connected. It's the backdrop of our lives and our mothers' lives and their mothers' lives back and back and back as far as you can go. 
And, as a woman, I know it has only not happened to me so far because of some kind of luck and circumstance. Because, as women, you know it could always happen to you. Maggie, the undefinable homeless woman who sometimes is a sex worker who ends up befriending and living in the house with Vivian, acts as a prophet to his spouse's problem, to give it a name and an air without still being able to define it precisely. She says in a trance-like voice, What if all the women that had been killed by men through history were visible to us all at once? If we could see them lying there? What if you could project a hologram of the bodies in the places they were killed? It's just a feeling I have all the time that I'm walking in and out of these deaths, and I should at least notice because I'm not dead yet, and there is no difference between those women and me, or you or your mother or the lady in the tea shop. We're just breezing in and out of the death zone, wading through the dead. You know how sometimes you can smell it on a man? Sometimes you just, if he's got you alone, if he had a rock. You know that thing you, when you feel it, like your blood knows it. I try and take note, because it's all I have in my power. To witness it and store it away, to look at the crime scene photographs and know how it happened and is happening and will happen in the future. The stains, the wounds, your children. I believe in this novel, this is Wilde's attempt to resurrect these women throughout time, to remind us in such an immediate way that this is how we live, this is the world we inhabit, and, I hope, to make the male audience reading this book, though particularly I doubt many men would pick this novel up, but that is based on my own assumptions, to make them think about the world women inhabit, and slide between, because we know that there is nothing saving us, not really. I think I begin to understand how tired my mother feels about the fight for equality. She feels she has fought her fight, she marched and campaigned, and now there are great swelling veins of violence, of inequality, of starvation and sacrifice that have never changed. And I, as a woman in her early twenties, feels like it might never change. Or it doesn't change quick enough. Because the long legacy of misogyny is what we've had to contest with, what we've had to face. And most men won't change, won't listen, won't adapt themselves. So it will continue on until they change. And it does continue on. The vigil for Ashling Murphy was held in St Peter's Square in Manchester, with the remnants left of that vigil being the flowers laid at the feet of Emmeline Pankhurst standing on a bronze chair, with deeds, not words, carved into the stone behind her. The trees are wrapped in ribbons the colour of the suffragette sash. One hundred years of white women's history standing in that square. My urge to cry with fury and a deep well of sadness has not yet gone from me when I pass her or think about the circumstances. And the names I've mentioned are the ones who are reported on, mainly white and young. About 57% of women killed in the last decade were murdered by someone they knew, usually an ex or a partner. Victims of colour, trans survivors and other people from minority groups who are attacked are less often to be reported on than the already slim figures. Reading this novel is like being shocked as that sick, revolting drop in your stomach is triggered, as more horror is revealed to be lurking around every corner and no woman is safe, even in the quiet moments. It feels like it does to be a woman in the world we live in now. The modern voice, Vivian, meets Maggie when Maggie pretends to know her in a dark supermarket car park when she notices a man crouching behind Vivian's passenger side door and is scared off by the solidarity of two women together. Later, Vivian thinks there is a man lurking outside her deck, 
in her back garden who ejaculates on her window. Her romantic dalliance with the strange man Vincent she meets in a different supermarket line ends with him lying on her, crushing her and tickling her after she explicitly said no. In this book there is no one grand moment of abuse, although they are frequent, as sometimes there is in the shows written by men, in which a woman is raped and then is able to overcome it, the rape fantasy film where she rampages and seeks out revenge to wrestle back the power that was taken from her. The terror, as female presenting people understand, lurks at every corner, every instant, and we feel it when it shifts in the air. If you are experiencing issues of domestic abuse, or violence, or rape, I will put some resources in the bio of this episode, and please reach out if you feel you need help, because you are absolutely not alone, and there are people who will listen and can help. There is another dimension to this novel that I found one of the hardest to read, and I will admit it's because I'm a bit of a scaredy cat when it comes to scary things. Part three focuses on the young girl, Sarah, who is accused of being a witch, who flees with a family in the 1700s and faces hunger and poverty in the forest as they run from the village who have just burnt the pig shed in the night. She is introduced as she is being raped by the men who accused her of being a witch while she is still a young child, and she is then taken in by the once prominent family of the clergyman who look after her, although he is now fallen from grace as he is disrespected as a drunk after his daughter and wife die. In this story, it is told through the perspective of the son, Joseph, who believes he is in love with Sarah, but ends up murdering her when he finds her sleeping with his father and falls into the same narrative as the original men that she bewitched him, and it wasn't his fault that he was raping her. Sarah is pregnant from this relationship, and when Joseph discovers her on top of his father, he realises that his father is the probable father of her child, and that because he can no longer imagine a future with her where he would have sexual ownership over her, he murders her. Her story is harrowing, because she appears as a ghost to the later generations of women who inhabit the house and she is sad and terrifying, but also acts as a huge source of comfort to them when she appears. It is certainly a novel that benefits from rereading, as you miss the clues that were laid before and how practices were passed down. Ruth, in the part two chapters, in the 1950s in the house near Bass Rock, is asked to put on an annual winter picnic where they dress up like Victorians and the men chase the women, sit on them and tickle them in inverted commas until they reveal their name. One of the first times Sarah, the young witch girl, speaks, she talks of how when the men came, they tormented her family and her sister by screaming at them to reveal their name, their real name, their witch name, in order to murder and torture them for being witches. We have our traditions and our long bloody history and the legacy that still presides over our culture, and misogyny might be one of the oldest hatreds in the world, alongside anti-Semitism and over the last 400 years of colonialism racism too. Male violence against women is enacted again and again until you feel reading this book like you're staring down the circle of it. It loops back up and around and is all intrinsically linked and interwoven and cannot be detangled from each other because it's all part of the same thing. The novel is set in Scotland where, besides me and my brother, generations of my family have come from the same small spot of coastline in Ayrshire. Witches were everywhere in the stories I knew growing up, but it is only now from the renewed interest in the campaign to publicly apologise to the thousands who were murdered between 1500 and 1700 
after being accused of witchcraft that gave me the idea to talk about this aspect of the book for this International Women's Day. Many of these who were murdered for being witches were women, widowed and outcast. Many were herbalists or isolated from the communities they grew up in, and nearly all were tortured, their bodies burnt. I bought this book on my solar trip up to Edinburgh last year, where I stayed in the castle hostel, which is just down the road from the witches' well. I was expecting some kind of monument, but all that lies there is a plaque on the wall which reads, This fountain, designed by John Duncan, is near the site on which many witches were burned at the stake. The wicked head and serene head signify that some use their exceptional knowledge of, for evil purposes, while others were misunderstood and wish their kind nothing but good. The serpent has dual significance of evil and wisdom. The foxglove spray further emphasises the dual purpose of many common objects. It was composed in 1894 to mark the spot where many witches were burned after they were killed at the bottom of the castle. And now, in recent years, the Witches of Scotland campaign campaigns for justice, for a legal pardon, an apology, and a national monument for the thousands of people, mostly women, that were convicted of witchcraft and executed between 1563 and 1736 in Scotland. And I'll link to their website and podcast series, which is excellent if you'd like to know more about the history of Scottish witch trials, which is just fascinating and bloody and horrendous. And the work they've been doing to right some of the wrongs. From my own history with Scotland, I knew about Scottish witches from Tam O'Shanter predominantly, the Rabbi Burns poem. The etching of the horse leaping over the bridge and the long horrific hand reaching out to grasp the tail of the terrified Meg, taking Tam to safety, had always fascinated me. For a couple of years I would read the translation of it on Halloween, and it was only during my research for this that I remembered about the dancing dead who'd congregated, the devil and the witches and the beasts who Tam spied upon before he is caught. And he is only caught because he is drunk and leering at the cutty sark, the beautiful witch, and cries out to her in lust. It is his own desire, and fall into temptation, by drink and by women, that causes him to nearly die, and to serve as a warning to all those who might admire Tam, or see themselves in him. As children, we'd visit the Tam O'Shanter Bridge in Alloway, where Robert Burns was born, besides the Robert Bird Centre that stands there now. It's beside the Kirk of Alloway, down the little road, and past the pub. The bridge itself is a remarkable structure, and it's higher than any I've crossed before, cobbled and steep, but at the pinnacle, when you hear the brook below, it does feel ancient, and everything is quiet. You can't hear the road anymore, all you hear is the water. It is a magical bridge to stand before, ordinary and incredible to behold. So, with all this, I began to look further into the witches of Ayrshire, to see who they were and what happened to them at, at that time. The most famous witch I came across was Maggie Osborne, who was said to have wrecked a ship off the coast, who was said to have flown over the hills and cursed all manner of people who came into contact with her. She was said to have poisoned people and sent an army of cats upon her maid. One account I read suggested the real Maggie came from a respected family and had developed a fever with which she began to hallucinate, and she recounted what she saw in these hallucinations to the Reverend Adair, who sought to prove she was a witch. She was burned at the cross of air, after many days of torture, in order to get her to confess, and there's even conjecture that her fever came back as she was tortured, and she began to confess more bizarre things. Wilde does not shun these magical elements, the knowing, the wildness, that comes with witchcraft. Throughout the novel there are allusions to wolves and foxes, wild animals that would tear at flesh and smell out death through the generations of women, circling them, surrounding them. But also, they stand in for the ways that humans, ourselves, can be animalistic and wild, and we have that just under the surface. Maggie talks about snarling like a wolf in the mirror, 
baring her teeth and letting the beast out of her skin because it is part of her. Christopher, as an adult visiting his old house that Vivian looks after until it sells, talks of the wolfman he and his brother could sense, could feel, could divert when it threatened to rise up within them. Foxes are frequently found in forests, standing outside the door on decks. They're everywhere in this book. Vincent, who has a quasi-beginnings of relationship with Vivian, has a tattoo of a wolf on his chest and calls it his spirit animal when they first meet. We're not supposed to find a definitive meaning from the metaphors of the fox or the wolf. They can be read as desire, as figments of traumatic responses. They can be the dynamics between men and women under centuries of patriarchal violence and rape. They can be the animal that lurks underneath our skin, but it reframes what we could have. And in the case of Sarah, the ghost did happen, been branded as witchcraft, but really could be the things we know in our bones. Something lying deep under the surface that we don't always choose to focus on as we swim through our days, but it's always there. This novel is deathly important for this time, and though dark, it is the most frank and intimate portrayal of the cycles of violence that women are subjected to that I've read in a long time. It is tender and it is raw, and hasn't been afraid to look the violence right in the eye to see its ugly, rotting insides. And it is women at the end, the women who hold the next generation of women in their arms and show them to the ghost in the corner who was murdered because of men, who seek out something different. When Catherine, Vivian's sister, when her husband Dom barges into the wake of an elderly uncle, wielding a hammer at the end, you think for a horrible moment the story plays out like the others. And it's difficult because it's hard not to let it get lost amongst it all and the different threads across the hundreds of years because it's not right at the very end. But this is the moment that the cycle is broken. Maggie approaches him, whispers in his ear and takes the hammer from him. He leaves the house running, no longer looking like the ape he was, no longer looking like the murderous animal of a man as he does not make the final violent step. We as readers don't know what Maggie said to him, but it is certainly something magical, and her magic and her integration to the broken, grieving family is a positive for them all. Call it intuition, and call it madness, but she is a kind of prophet that stirs up the spirits of all those dead and murdered women who came before to bear witness to this circle being broken, and it's treated as an ordinary moment, which I think is actually fairly radical. Much of this book I have read during the day, in case the ghost girl Sarah popped up in the narrative, and when the violence committed by the nameless, faceless men against centuries of nameless, faceless girls and women was pictured too easily for me. It has just been over a year since Sarah Everard's body was found after she'd been brutalised by the serving officer, and very little, it feels, has changed in that year since. But the Bass Rock sees into the murky waters of the history of it all, of all the legacy and the generations who enact it, to offer an insight that is beyond important for looking into the world we still reside within and how we might find the tiny ways of making our way out of it. Thank you so much for listening to this special International Women's Day episode of uh, Writing Women podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any other suggestions, please do get in touch as in the usual manners and um, I will speak to you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.